3650 lecture Thursday September 17th fuel utilization fat metabolism let me finish up a couple of points on protein metabolism that I just, just make sure we're clear on some final key points with protein metabolism as we saw in some of those pictures the body can obviously metabolize amino acids okay we can metabolize amino acids. Um, of the three nutrients, it is by far the third in line to be used. Okay? And what's the major the major reason that the body prefers not to use protein? It's, it, it, it's more complicated. Okay? It's not necessarily that it takes more energy, although it, it does in a sense. It's more complicated because we have to do what with amino acids? What specific thing that we didn't have to do with fats or proteins? Take off the amino group, okay? And we got to do what with that amino group? Get rid of it, and it goes out of the body how? Into urine as urea, or it can go out as sweat. What else can we do with the amino group other than just flush it out. Transaminate it, which means what? Kind of recycle it. You, you attach it to a different molecule. Okay? Alright. We can metabolize, so key points, we can metabolize protein, amino acids, but we prefer not to. Uh, the body will start to increase its metabolism of protein under uh, more so under what would be considered severe conditions. I showed you a picture of someone who had been through some severe conditions, and what was that? What's severe conditions? Starvation. Okay? So the body will use more amino acids, will use more protein and metabolism under more severe conditions, like starvation, and to, re to relate it to exercise, severe conditions would be very long, uh, prolonged, ultra-endurance type exercise, particularly when the person is carbohydrate depleted. Okay? So when somebody's really depleted of their carbohydrate stores and they're still trying to exercise for long periods of time, that actually metabolically kind of mimics starvation. And so the body will ramp up its protein metabolism a little bit. All right, so a couple of key points so far. We will use amino acids in aerobic metabolism, but we prefer not to. We will use protein metabolism a little bit more under severe conditions. Third key point, at most, even under severe conditions, at most, we will get about 15% of our total energy from protein metabolism. All right? So even, even under fairly severe conditions, we're, we're not going to be getting a large percentage of our energy from metabolizing protein. We get it mostly from either fats or carbohydrates. Right? Have we got those three key points? We will metabolize amino acids, but the body prefers not to. We will increase our amino acid metabolism under severe conditions. 
That's two. And the third one is, at most, even under the most severe conditions, you're only going to get about 15% of your total energy expenditure from that protein metabolism. Okay? Pretty good with protein? Right, what I want to do is, is move on to fat metabolism. We'll talk about fats a little bit more uh, and then kind of integrate that with our discussion of carbohydrate because the body really uh, does sort of shift back and forth in, in terms of what's predominant uh, of carbohydrate or fat metabolism depending on uh, what you're doing at the time, what you've eaten, um, uh, what kind of hormonal status the, the body's in. So we want to kind of talk about these independently, but also sort of talk about them together. All right, so fat metabolism. Uh, one of the big concerns in our society because uh, lots of the foods that we eat uh, are very dense in calories and have a lot of fat. In fact, one of the things we do is uh, in this country is we'll take traditional cuisines like... Uh, uh, Latin American or Mexican food, and we Americanize them by adding lots of fat to it. Okay, so we have a lot of fat in our diet. As we talked about last time, you know, when you eat foods that contain fat, digested and absorbed into the lymph, eventually dumped into the bloodstream, and we focused on these two things: these fatty acids and these triglycerides. Okay, so what I want to do is just look at those a little bit. Uh, Three examples of fatty acids. Um, here's one we talked about last time, palmitic acid or palmitate. And you can see it's a long chain of carbons and it's got oxygen on one end, all of these hydrogens, um, and this carbon with the hydrogens on the end. In, in this case with palmitate or palmitic acid, every single possible place where there can be a bond, it has a hydrogen connected to it. This fatty acid is fully saturated with hydrogens. Okay? It is fully saturated with hydrogens. There are, and with palmitic acid, there are 16 carbons. We've got examples down here of oleic acid and linoleic acid. These have 18 carbons. Notice with oleic acid right here, instead of having hydrogens, there's a double bond between the carbons, okay? And it means we don't have hydrogens right here. So there are spots where there could be hydrogens, but they're, they're not. So this is an unsaturated fat, okay? So oleic acid is an unsaturated fat. We come down here to another 18 carbon fatty acid, and this is linoleic acid. And notice that just for, you know, so your understanding of, of, of these fats, there are two places where there's double bonds between the carbons, taking out more of the hydrogens. This is a poly unsaturated fat. Okay? So that's just to give you an idea of the chemical difference between these fats. Unfortunately, in, in food processing in this country, we often, well, let me back up. The saturated fats, you tend to find more in animal sources, and it is saturated fat in our diet that tends to be more associated with having high cholesterol levels and tends to be associated with 
uh, the development of coronary artery disease and heart disease, okay? Um, having higher levels of unsaturated fats in your diet, uh, or at least in, in balance between the two, is more healthy. Well, one of the things that we do in this country in the food service uh, or the food uh, manufacturing industry is because these solids or these uh, fatty acids at room temperature tend to be solid. Okay? You go to the store and you get a, a jar of Crisco, that's mostly saturated fat. Okay? These fatty acids at room temperature tend to be liquid. Okay? And there are the oils. Uh, now, well, unfortunately, what we tend to do is we tend to take these unsaturated fats and you can, you can read the labels and see where you have partially hydrogenated products, right? Everybody familiar with that? You've seen that term on labels? What they do is they take these more healthy unsaturated fats and they hydrogenate them. They add hydrogens to them, turning them into saturated fats. Okay, so you see some of the common things that you run into with, with uh, fats related to your diet. Now, when we eat foods, uh, there's a variety of different ways that we process the, uh, and, and we do fat metabolism, but we're going to focus on these fatty acids. Okay, now, when we eat these, these fatty acids are transported around in the body and they are taken up by fat cells, adipocytes and they're stored, the storage form is as a triglyceride. And all that is, here's the same three fatty acids, like this, and they're just connected together with a glycerol molecule. Okay? That's just the, you know, how we talk about um, glycogen being glucose molecules just all stuck together, and we store it. And then when we need to use it, we, we slice off the glucose molecules again. With fats, we take these fatty acid chains, we take them up into a fat cell, we store it, we form a triglyceride, and that's our storage form of fat. Okay? All right, so here's a fat cell. Here's the bloodstream up here. So this is a capillary flowing through this fat tissue. Here, these TGs right here are our triglycerides. So whenever we want to use fats as energy, we have to mobilize these fatty acids. So what we do is we break down these triglycerides, and we basically break off each of these fatty acids, and the fatty acids go back into the blood, they attach to a plasma protein, and then they circulate around the body. Then tissues like muscle can take them up, let me go back to here, tissues like muscle can take up this fatty acid and bring it into the mitochondria and then send it through that process where if we've got palmitate, 16 carbons, we lop them off two at a time through this process of beta oxidation and we send them through the Krebs cycle, the electron transport chain, and we produce lots of ATP. Okay? Um, now, part of the problem is where, are, where in the body are these adipocytes? Where are these fat cells in the body? Wherever there's fat tissue. They're all over the place, right? If you're, if you're sitting on a cyclergometer pedaling, you need to get those fatty acids from those fat cells 
need to get them from the fat cells wherever they're stored in the body and you've got to break them down and you've got to ship them through the blood and then you've got to take them up into the muscle and then you've got to get that fatty acid into the mitochondria. One of the dietary supplements that you might be familiar with that you run into is a supplement called carnitine. It is because uh, what this is representing right here is the, the membrane of the mitochondria. These fatty acids represented in yellow here have to be transported into the mitochondria and it requires a protein-based um, transport molecule. That, that um, uh, Its main constituent is carnitine. And so people think that, okay, well if I just eat more carnitine, I'll beef up these transporters and I'll be able to get more fat, fatty acids into the mitochondria and rely more on fat metabolism, okay? Good in theory, doesn't really work. At least not for exercise. Okay. Um, okay. If, if we start with one molecule of glucose and we metabolize it aerobically, completely, how many ATPs did we get? 36, 32 to 36. Right. If we start with a single molecule of palmitate, a fatty acid, and metabolize it completely, how many ATPs did we get? 129. Right. So fat metabolism is a lot more advantageous because it provides us a lot more ATP energy. Okay. Plus, your body only stores somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2,000 to 2,500 calories of carbohydrate fuel. The average person stores about 100,000 calories of fuel of fat in their body. Okay? So are you likely to deplete your fat stores? Not likely. Okay? So get a lot more ATP from it and we have a lot more of it stored in the body. So it seems like that makes it a perfect fuel for activity. Yes? How many ATPs? Well from that one fatty acid, as an example I gave, palmitate, 129. Okay? So you get a lot of ATPs, you got a lot of, lot of stored fat, so it seems like the perfect fuel, but there's a problem. All right, what this represents, and at, at rest and at low exercise intensities, this is 25% of your VO2 max, the majority of your energy is coming from fat metabolism, plasma, FFA, which is free fatty acids. Okay, so the majority of your energy at rest and at low exercise intensities is provided by fat metabolism. But as you go up in exercise intensity, 65%, 85% of VO2 max, your ability or the amount of energy that's provided by fat declines and the amount of energy provided by carbohydrate increases. Okay. Another way to depict this is this way. Here's fat metabolism. As you go up in exercise intensity, your fat metabolism goes down as a percentage of your total energy. 
and your carbohydrate metabolism goes up as a percent of your total energy. Okay? So we favor fat metabolism at rest, but as you start to increase exercise intensity, we start to favor, uh, by percentage, carbohydrates. Now, how do we figure this out? Um, let me jump to fuel utilization, because this will be what you're going to do in a lab tomorrow. Okay, we can get a pretty good idea by using that metabolic part that you used last week in lab. We can get a pretty good idea of what proportion of a person's fuel is coming from fat and what is coming from carbohydrates. And this is how we do it. Uh, same kind of tasks, we've got them hooked up either on a cyclergometer or a treadmill, whatever. We've got them hooked up to the metabolic cart and we have them go at a, in this case, instead of a max test where we went up and up and up, this type of test we want to have them at a steady state for some length of time. Okay, steady state exercise. What we are going to do is measure the amount of oxygen that they are consuming and the amount of carbon dioxide that they're giving off. And the ratio of those two, how much carbon dioxide production divided by the oxygen consumption is called the RER or respiratory exchange ratio. Okay. I won't go through all the chemical steps of this, but here's, here's palmitate. It's got those 16 carbons, okay? When you metabolize that palmitate molecule, you consume 23 oxygens, but you only put out 16 carbon dioxides. So when you do the math, that comes out, the RER, the ratio is 0.7. So the idea there is you hook somebody up to the metabolic cart, you measure how much oxygen they're consuming, carbon dioxide producing, and if it comes out 0.7, the notion is that they're burning 100% fat. Okay? If you go to glucose, I told you glucose is a six carbon molecule, here it is right here. If you metabolize glucose completely, you produce six CO2s and you consume six oxygens. So you do the math and that gives you an RER of 1.0. So the idea if the person's exercising and their RER is 1.0, they're burning 100% fat or 100% carbohydrate as their fuel source. Okay? So I can tell you that at rest, most people, when you get them in a nice, comfortable recliner, you have them sit and rest for some period of time in an unstressful situation, you hook them up to a metabolic cart and just let them relax, you measure their oxygen consumption, at rest, most people's RER is around 0.75. Okay? It's not all the way down to 0.7, but it's about 0.75. So what that tells us is at rest, about 15% of your energy expenditure is coming from burning carbohydrates, and about 85% is coming from burning fat. Okay. And then look at what happens as we go up in exercise intensity and the RER climbs, 
we increase the percentage of our energy that's coming from carbohydrate and we decrease the percentage of our energy that is from fat. When somebody's RER is about 0.85, it's about 50-50, half and half. Okay? Now, let me show you a little more practical example. Uh, let's switch back to the other, other one. The sped up, yes. And in fact, well, let's go. Let's go back and address that question. The, the comment was that metabolism has sped up, though, and that's correct. When you're sitting at rest, you're getting 85% approximately of your energy from burning fat. But what's your total energy expenditure when you're laying on the couch? Not very high. So, so most of your energy is coming from burning fat, but your total energy expenditure is not very high because you're not doing anything. Okay. Well, once you get out and start walking and then start jogging and start running, your, the percentage of your energy that you're getting from fat goes down, but what's your total energy expenditure doing? It's going up. Okay, and this will this will be an important concept that I want to talk about in a couple minutes. Uh, actually, let's talk about it now. How many of you all have uh, get on the treadmill or the rec center or one of the aerobic exercise machines and they've got the uh, programmed in protocols, right? Fat burning, right? Yeah, you choose, yeah, you choose that fat burning protocol. And, and so typically with that kind of protocol, what sort of exercise intensity is it? Yeah. Tends to be low intensity, right? Um, and it's that, if you don't learn anything else from this class, <laughs> I've, I've made it my, my, well, kind of minor mission in life, uh, to, to stamp out this, this, this fat-burning misconception. And it really just kills me that they've now incorporated into these uh, exercises protocols because it's based in this idea there's, there's two fallacies uh, to this notion that if you want to lose weight if you want to lose fat then what we want to do is we want to exercise so that we can burn fat right and in order and then then the second part of the uh, of this this fallacy is that in order to burn fat we need to exercise it in this fat burning zone and, and typically the fat burning zone tends to be a lower exercise intensity. And the reason is, the rationale is this. Because if you go up in exercise intensity, what happens to the percentage of energy that you're getting from burning fat? It goes down. So we don't want to exercise at high intensity because we don't want to exercise at high intensity because we're not going to be burning very much fat. Okay? Well, what's wrong with that rationale? Number one, they're not taking into account what your total energy expenditure is. Uh, second of all, if you follow that same logic, when is it that you burn the highest percentage of fat? When you're laying on the couch. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so you can go 
go out and tell people that if you want to burn the most fat, go home and lay on the couch. Right? Well, we know that's silly because So that doesn't do you much good. Okay, so here's, here's a, an example of why that's crazy. All right, here's somebody who exercised, uh, this, was, this was a little, kind of a little pilot study done where uh, they had somebody uh, do like 30 minutes of a, of a dance aerobics type class, group exercise class. And under the first condition, they had this person exercise at 50% of their VO2 max, which is in that range where their RER was about 0.85, which meant they were getting 50% of their energy from fat and 50% of their energy from carbohydrate. Now, the class lasts exactly 30 minutes. So if they went for 30 minutes at 50% of their VO2 max, they wound up burning 73 calories from, of fat and 73 calories of carbohydrate for a total energy expenditure of 156 calories. Okay? Then they came back in the next class period and they exercised for the same 30 minutes, but now they've ramped up their exercise intensity to 70% of their VO2 max. So what's going to happen to uh, their RER? They've gone from 50% of VO2 max to 70. What's going to happen to RER? <laughs> RER goes up, which means the percent of energy that you're getting from carbohydrate goes up, and the percent of your energy from fat goes down. And so at 70%, fat dropped to about 40%, and carbohydrate went up to 60%. So we're burning less fat, right? Uh -huh. Look at what happens. Your, because your total energy expenditure has gone up, 40% of a bigger number is actually more fat calories. Okay? Now we get a lot more carbohydrate calories because we've, we've gone up so much, but here's, here's where the percentage has gone down, but your total fat expenditure has actually gone up because it's a smaller percentage but of a much bigger number. Okay? Now eventually, if this person goes up to 75 or 80% of VO2 max, then this percentage does go down so much that that's not the case. Well, let's say they do the 30 minutes at 85% of their VO2 max. You know, 90, 95% of their calories burned are going to be from carbohydrate, but what's their total, total caloric expenditure going to be? Way higher. Okay? So, let me ask you this have to burn fat to lose fat? Do you have to burn fat during exercise to lose body fat? The answer that's no. Because if you did, um, bodybuilders and sprinters would be fat. Usain Bolt would be a big old tub of lard. Right? Why? What, what, what energy system does he use predominantly in his training and competition? Anaerobic, right? Can we burn fat anaerobically? No, we burn fat through the aerobic energy system. So, so that's one piece of evidence. There's another, um, there was a nice little study done about 10 years ago or so 
uh, collaboration between our department and the nutrition department where they took a group of subjects, they tested their body composition, weight and percent body fat. They took this group uh, and divided them into two groups and had them train, come to the lab and train three days a week for 12 weeks. One of the groups exercised at higher intensity, so they were burning more carbohydrate, and one of the groups exercised at lower intensity, so they were burning, uh, uh, they were more in that fat burning zone. They had them train for three times a week for 12 weeks, and they retested their body composition. Well, guess what? Both groups lost weight, and there was no difference in the percent uh, of body fat uh, loss between the two. They both lost weight, and they both lost fat weight. Okay? But what's the key element? If one group's going to exercise at high intensity and another group is going to exercise at low intensity, what's the key element? The amount of time. If you exercise at lower intensity, what do you have to do to make up the caloric expenditure? You've got to go longer period of time. Okay? So, the, the, the only way that this fat burning zone is sort of valid is if you compensate by increased duration. Okay? There's lots of good reasons to recommend to people lower exercise intensity. They may be unfit, they may, they may not like the, you know, the discomfort that comes with you know, much higher intensity exercise, they may have medical conditions that causes you to keep their exercise intensity below a certain range, but burning fat is not one of the reasons why you recommend lower exercise intensity. In fact, somebody's going to exercise in some kind of fixed time frame, like a class situation, the best thing they can do is burn as many calories as they can in that fixed amount of time. Okay? So, it's not fat burning, it's calorie burning. Okay? How many total calories? Yeah. Yes. There, like I said, there's, when you're prescribing exercise for people, there's lots of different factors that go into how you choose what level of intensity you're going to recommend for them to exercise. Um, now, let, let me show you this example because it, it falls right in line with this. Um, okay. Let me let me illustrate. Uh, all right, because the, the the one thing we haven't clearly talked about yet, we've talked about this percentage, percentage of energy from fat, percentage of energy from carbohydrate. What we haven't talked about is absolute. How much total fat are you metabolizing? And that's represented by this. Uh, uh, kilocalories per minute of, of fat metabolism and kilocalories per minute of carbohydrate metabolism. This was a guy, a friend of mine, who had a 50th birthday coming up and he decided for his 50th birthday he wanted to get back in shape and train and run a marathon. He was somewhat overweight and so he got it locked into his head. When this was, I mean, this was uh, good motivation that he wanted to lose body fat and be lighter and leaner uh, to run this marathon, but he got this notion in his head that in order to lose that body fat, 
I've got to run at an intensity where I'm going to burn the most body fat. Okay? So instead of doing this percentage of maximum heart rate or getting on the treadmill and selecting the fat burning zone, basically what we did is we brought him into the lab, put him on the treadmill, hooked him up to the metabolic cart. At rest, his respiratory exchange ratio was about 0.77, which meant at rest he was getting almost 80% from fat and, and a little over 20% from carbohydrate. Okay? had him run, and what I did before we started, I said, okay, what's your typical training pace? You go out for your long runs on the weekend preparing for this marathon, what kind of what kind of pace do you typically run? And then so we built this test around that. We, we did a couple of stages uh, at, at paces slower than that, and a couple of stages at paces at or, or a little bit higher than that. And so... Um, started him off and we had him run at a 9 minute and 30 second per mile pace. We measuring his oxygen consumption and sure enough from rest his RER goes from 0.77 to 0.88. So right out of the gate he's over 50% carbohydrate burning. Okay, So percentage of fat drops to 40% so he's at 60-40. But his total fat expenditure goes up. Total amount of fat, not percentage, total amount of fat expenditure goes up. So we bump them up to nine, or, or increase the speed to nine minutes per mile. His RER goes to 0.89, so that's, you know, 63.37 percentage, almost two-thirds, one-third. And But, again, his total fat burning goes up to about five calories each minute. Then we bumped him up to an eight minute per mile pace and he went to 0.92, you know, which was about you know, 73.37 and well, actually I missed, I skipped 8.30. We start to see his fat oxidation falling here. So he's reached his total right here at nine minutes per mile, okay? So as he starts to increase his running speed, his total fat oxidation goes up and then he eventually gets to a speed where his total fat oxidation starts to go down. So I asked him, what, what's the pace you typically run during your long runs on the weekend? Guess what he told me? Nine minutes a mile. Okay. For those long endurance runs, he was naturally selecting a pace where he was right around his maximal fat oxidation anyway. Okay. Now, uh, what does this look like? As you increase exercise intensity, the total amount of energy that you get from carbohydrate goes up and keeps going up. Okay, so this is this is running his running speed. It goes up and it keeps going up. Your total amount of energy that you get from fat goes up and then starts to go down. Right, so the key point here is you get to a level of exercise intensity where you can't very effectively metabolize fat or use fat as an energy source. We've got so much of it, and we can get so much ATP from it, why don't we use fat as an energy source when we're up here at the higher exercise intensities? What's that? answer was, you can't metabolize it quickly enough. Let me repeat that. You can't metabolize the fat 
quickly enough. It's a terrific fuel source when you're at rest or at low intensities because you have enough time to fully metabolize those fatty acids. When you're exercising at high intensity, you can't run the metabolic process fast enough to keep up. So what we have to do then is default to a more efficient, rapid fuel source, and that's carbohydrate. Okay? The, the, the simplest answer is you cannot metabolize fat fast enough to support higher intensity exercise. And this is higher intensity, mostly aerobic exercise. All right, so this is one of the things that you guys will do in lab tomorrow is, um, no, you're doing VO2 max tomorrow, right? Yeah, 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 okay, never mind. Well, not never mind everything, just never mind the lab part. All right, well, one of the things that's associated with this is uh, remember I told you that we call these free fatty acids, but they don't really float around free. They've got to be attached to a plasma protein to transport them. Um, well, one of the things that happens is when exercise intensity gets high and you see an increase in lactate and the body starts to become more acidic, what happens is the, the free fatty acid can't bind with the plasma protein and so it can't be carried through the blood. So that limits our ability to get those fatty acids to the muscle. Uh, one of the other things that happens is for the fatty acids to get to the muscle um, and can get into the mitochondria, um, the fatty acids, let's go back up here. I gotta restructure these and combine these somehow. back to this one. In each of these carbohydrate uh, glucose molecules, there's, there's, a, there's an equal amount of oxygen. But when you look at palmitate, there's all of these carbons, but there's a, a, a relatively uh, small amount of oxygen with that big molecule. Okay. So in order to completely oxidize these long fatty acid chains, where do we get the extra oxygen to oxidize these? You've got to breathe it in. Okay? So for that's also part of the reason that we can't metabolize fats fast enough, because we have to bring in more oxygen to metabolize the fatty acids. Okay? So Bottom line, fat's a great fuel source, but during higher intensity exercise, we can't metabolize it fast enough, and we have to rely, therefore, more on carbohydrates. Okay. Let's see. All right, here's, um, here's another way to look at it. We go back to our cyclist, the same guy we looked at with... Um, uh, earlier with the oxygen de deficit, riding at 80 watts, which is just very, very easy pedaling for this guy, uh, he's at about 50-50.
okay, carbohydrate and fat, so percentage-wise. He goes up to 150 watts, and he's still just barely over 50. He's 52, 48. 150 watts for this guy is still pretty much a warm-up. He goes up to 250 watts, which is now a pretty, pretty reasonable, uh, um, not really a hard training pace, but a moderate training pace for him. And he's at about 60-40. Okay, so um, carbohydrate is now the predominant fuel source. Then he goes up to 300 watts, which is a pretty good uh, hard training pace, and he's at about 80-20. Right, so he's relying mostly on, uh, percentage-wise, on carbohydrate. This is sort of the same example as the, uh, just a different athlete and some different data looking at, uh, here's total um, energy expenditure and energy expenditure from carbohydrate and fat. So here's carbohydrate going up. As you go up in exercise intensity, it goes up. And then he sees the same sort of response that the um, runner did in that total fat oxidation goes up and up and up, but once you've got to it past a certain point, it starts to go down. Okay? He's now gotten to the point where he can't metabolize fat fast enough, so fat metabolism starts to go down and carbohydrate total oxidation goes up. Alright, that's the same guys there. Okay. Quite clear on the intensity issue. Carbohydrate versus fat with exercise intensity. Good. We're going to switch the idea here, and the response is a little different. If you start out and you do long, steady state exercise, long, steady state exercise, initially what happens is, um, and, and let's say, so that was at about 250 watts for this guy. Because he was at about 60-40, okay, 60% carbohydrate, 40% fat. If he were to ride at that intensity for an hour or an hour and a half, long, steady state, what happens in the first hour or so is that we see the energy that he gets from carbohydrates slowly going down a little bit and the energy that he's getting from fat slowly going up a little bit. This is steady state exercise, so it's not, the, it's not the effect of intensity, it's the effect of the same intensity over a long period of time. Okay? Same intensity over a long period of time. Two reasons. One is, it takes a while to get fat metabolism up and going. You gotta break down those triglycerides, you gotta circulate them, you gotta get the, the whole fat metabolism machinery ramped up. So it takes a little while. And, and if you started off exercising, it's gonna take 10 or 15 minutes for that to get going good. And in that period of time, you're gonna depend more on carbohydrate because it's a much easier, much more efficient fuel source, okay? Second thing is, you're only storing about 2,000 calories of carbohydrate energy in your body. So the longer you exercise, the more you are depleting your carbohydrate stores. And as your carbohydrate stores go down, you are going to start depending more on fat oxidation and less on carbohydrate. Okay? So, the effect of same intensity, but duration is that 
takes a while to get fat metabolism ramped up, and as carbohydrate stores start to go down, you start to see uh, more reliance on fat metabolism. Okay? Question? Yes. And we're going to talk about that next time. And the question was, would carb loading affect this? And the answer to that is yes. And in fact, because <laughs> carbohydrates, because carbohydrates are such an important fuel source for high intensity aerobic type exercise, distance running, cycling, triathlons, because carbohydrates are such an important energy source, one of the things that has been very consistently shown in the research literature is that you can manipulate your carbohydrate stores and manipulate your carbohydrate intake and help your performance. Okay? And that is actually going to be the subject of our lecture on Tuesday. <laughs>